Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, very exciting. I mean, the very first time that we're doing this via video and we have a great founder. Uh, we're going to be learning a lot, you know, from building, scaling, pattern recognition. I mean, he's gone from the other side of the table as an investor to now being an entrepreneur. But I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Anshul Ruparel. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So originally born and raised there in uh, Canada, in Calgary. So how was life growing up? Uh, life was good. Calgary is very cold. It goes for 40 below zero in the winter. And so that was an adjustment. My parents are both immigrants and they grew up in Africa. And so I think it took them quite a bit of time to adjust to that. But uh, Calgary in Canada is just a great place to grow up. And obviously growing up there to parents that had to build their own future, you know, coming from, from a different country as immigrants, uh, really building their own business, you having exposure to the entrepreneurial life and the hustling mentality. So, so how was that for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I saw my, my parents really, and, and my, my grandparents and, and all my relatives build themselves into something from nothing. And so that was pretty inspiring. And I think, you know, grounded me in the type of grit and hustle it takes just to succeed generally in life. But uh, it, it was fun. I mean, there were some successes and, and there were some failures, but um, I've been around entrepreneurs basically from the day that I was born. And, and I think, to be honest, it's part of what inspired me to do what I'm doing today. A lot of the, the entrepreneurial work that my family did was actually involved in the real estate sector. And now the company that I'm building is trying to transform the real estate industry in Canada. And so I, I think there has to be some cause and effect there. Absolutely. And, and I guess looking at them and seeing them going through the ups and downs, I mean, what were some of the key lessons that, that you got from them, from, from being there with them? As, because obviously you were sharing the same, the same roof. So you were able to share their good times, the bad times, you know, as well to a certain degree, so I'm sure you got your lessons from that as well. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a couple of things that immediately come to mind. Um, I think the first is that you need to be emotionally resilient to the ups and downs that are the life of an entrepreneur. I mean, things, when they go well, are, are euphoric and exciting, and when they go poorly, it can be quite stressful. And so if you can't numb yourself to the to those ups and downs, then it's going to be difficult to, to endure that life for too long. Uh, and so I, I certainly think that I... I learned that lesson uh, both through osmosis from my family and then I've learned it firsthand as an entrepreneur thereafter. Uh, you know, I think the other is that there's an incredible importance around surrounding yourself with the right people 
to succeed. And so, you know, knowing where your strengths are and then finding people to compliment you where you don't have those direct strengths is, is critical. My dad and his brothers are actually in business together in many parts, and they all just play different roles. They divide responsibility really cleanly. And so I've taken a lot of that into the relationship that I have with my co-founders today, where if you're standing on top of each other and trying to do the same thing, it's going to just create tension and friction and result in you moving a lot more slowly than you would otherwise. Absolutely. So, so in your case, you did your undergrad. And then after doing your undergrad, you basically went at it you know, and, and, and did banking. So, so why banking? <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't quite follow the, uh, the the kind of narrative arc that I would have expected for myself having seen my, what my family went through. But to, I mean, to be honest, to be totally transparent, I, I went to study business in undergrad and everyone in my program was going into banking or consulting or accounting. And to a degree, I just followed the herd, I think, more than, than I, I perhaps should have. Uh, and so I did my first job as an investment banker, which was, uh, I mean, I learned a lot, but it was... It was a grueling couple of years. And then I transitioned after investing banking into private equity, where I started to see these, you know, the opportunity to learn what it takes to evaluate companies, what it takes to work with entrepreneurs and, and management teams. And I thought that actually could just be a good, a good experience for me to learn what it takes to build a company over time. And it was like my step in the direction of doing something more entrepreneurial. And I realized after a couple of years of that, despite the fact that I learned an incredible amount and I worked with some amazing people and got the chance to see you know, executives and companies both succeed and fail gloriously. I, I just realized eventually that the only way to be an entrepreneur is by being one. I can't, you know, learn by, by watching others. And so after a couple of years of that, I decided to go and, and try to set out more on my own. Got it. And obviously that was the time that uh, you eventually met Fabrice Grinda, who has also been on the show. And, and that was coincidentally as well with the time that you were in New York City. Uh, and you were doing your MBA program at uh, Columbia. So, so why, out of all the places, did you decide that New York would be a good stop for you? I, I had this idea in my head that I wanted to go and do something entrepreneurial, and I didn't know if that meant I was going to join an early stage company or I was going to start a company of my own. But what I wanted to ensure is that I had the opportunity just to be surrounded by people doing interesting things and, and building. And I, I did my MBA, and so I, I knew I'd be spending part of the time in, in school. And I wanted to be in a position where I could spend the rest of my time working with companies and entrepreneurs. And so New York gave me the ability to spend literally one day a week in school and then six days a week working with different startups. And so, and, and not just startups, I worked with other types of companies too, but I ended up taking roles on the side in, in products, in, in marketing, in ops. And I got a sense from these different companies and entrepreneurs, it's like what it takes to succeed. And in some cases, things to avoid uh, if you want to succeed. Um, and so it gave me uh, just an amazing amount of experience and perspective very quickly. And uh, and then I, I kind of serendipitously met Fabrice Grinda, who, for those who are listening who don't know, he's a multi-time entrepreneur and he's built and scaled and, and sold some, some very successful companies. And he started a venture capital fund with his partner, Jose Marin, called FJ Labs, which is now one of the preeminent marketplace uh, investing firms really globally. And uh, and I met Fabrice and I was telling him about what I wanted to do. And he said, you should just come and work for me. I can you know, teach you what it's like to invest in companies and I can actually give you some experience in, in building them. Uh, and so I ended up joining the team at FJ Labs in, in a bit of a hybrid capacity. I spent half my time working with them to meet early stage entrepreneurs that are raising primarily seed rounds of financing and ended up helping the team make investment decisions and then supporting those companies afterwards. And so I was involved in investing in 30 or 35 companies over a couple of years. And then the other half of my time, I spent supporting entrepreneurs that were incubating businesses within FJ Labs. And so every year, FJ supports one or two companies to go and and 
uh, you know, create an idea from nothing and provide them with the financial backing and some of the expertise to do so. And so I was involved in, in helping two companies, one of which was a company called Poncho, uh, working with an entrepreneur named Mike Lloyd, who's amazing. And, and he was building effectively a D2C, a direct-to-consumer insurance brokerage, focused on PNC insurance. Uh, and I think Mike will be the first to tell you that it was a, a solution in search of a problem. It was a really interesting lesson learned. And like, you have this amazing idea for a product you think should exist, but forget to talk to, to users first about whether they actually want to use it. And it became very clear that this was a, a vitamin, not a painkiller, and, and one that didn't necessarily see a clear path to building a venture scale outcome. And so we ended up shutting that down after after a little while, but an amazing experience and, and set of learnings on like how to build product, how to do customer discovery effectively, how to build a sales channel when your your traditional digital online advertising channels don't work that effectively. And then after that company uh, transitioned to to being sold to an acquirer, uh, there were another a couple other entrepreneurs uh, working at FJ. They were working on this idea for what eventually became a marketplace connecting hourly workers and small businesses. And the company is called Merlin. It went from zero to a couple hundred employees in, in a few years. Uh, and I was involved in helping those guys in the early stages do that customer discovery work side. You know, what is the, the right product vision, et cetera. And so that was another just really amazing experience where I got a firsthand, or rather I got to kind of sit in the passenger seat and be involved um, in some of the early stage decisions and getting a sense of what it takes to go from zero to one, um, which was just a, a really rewarding and exciting um, and, and fulfilling experience. And I think that, you know, that combination of experiences of working with amazing entrepreneurs and then seeing what it's like to start something from nothing is what has ignited the flame where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to go and build the company. And, you know, it's interesting because I think that you've hit it on every single angle when it comes to deal making, which I'm sure is, it has helped you to develop that pattern recognition. So if we take a look and, and we go back throughout your journey, I mean, first you started with investment banking. So obviously there you were able to see like what really makes a deal click and a deal go forward. Also, then you went into private equity. So a little bit more on the later stage, but you were able to see what it looks like in into going through financing cycle to financing cycle to get it to that level. And then you go all the way to the initial stages, which is what you did with FJ Labs with Fabrice, which is more focused on the early stages, seed, series A. So when it comes to really pattern recognition, uh, what were you able to develop during those, I mean, all those different uh, experiences that led you to believe this is what separates something that is going to work versus something that is not going to work when it comes to pattern recognition? No? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, when I came into my experience in the early stage, I brought a lot of, I think a lot of experience that was helpful and then a lot of bias as well. And so I, I'd seen how to assess success once it's there. And so, you know, assessing a market opportunity for a new business, assessing the economics of a business model uh, with a high degree of granularity. And so that kind of later stage company analysis I brought to the table. And that is what I think helped me to build a, a set of tools to both define and assess successful company strategy, uh, which was really helpful. And then when I transitioned to the early stage, I realized that, um, you know, assessing a market opportunity is critical, but the path to capture that market opportunity is going to be an indirect one uh, as an early stage company. And that what matters the most is, is if the people who are you know, seeking to, to build towards that vision have what it takes to manage the adversity that will come to attract incredible people to come and work with them. And so what I came to realize is that when I was you know, evaluating early stage entrepreneurs and evaluating myself as a potential entrepreneur or co-founders to work with, there were a couple of things that, that just had to be there. One was just, an obsession with the customer 
and an understanding of their needs and pain points so that you can design for them instead of for yourself and kind of superimpose that on, on what you think might work in the industry. The second is that you need to be an exceptional salesperson. You need to convince investors that they should give you money to go and pursue this vision. You need to convince customers that they should take a bet on you to go in and even test out your product or service. And then you need to convince amazing people to come and work with you to, to you know, to make that vision a reality, either your co-founders to eventual employees. Uh, and then you need to pick people who have the resilience and the grit and the drive to get through the inevitable downs that will come alongside the ups in those first couple of years. And so I think that that combination of experiences was really helpful to me. Uh, and I'm sure there's like a bit of hindsight here where I'm able to articulate this a lot better now having been through the experience of building a company for a little while. But uh, but I certainly think that, I certainly hope that those were, you know, helpful lessons that I learned. So then let's talk about properly. At what point the idea of properly really comes into place? And how was that process of incubating the idea, perhaps like putting the team together and really bring it to life? What was that like? I mean, it, it's it's a, actually really fun reflecting on it. We just hit our third year anniversary a couple of days ago. So it's nice to, to reflect back on the early days. And so I mentioned before that my family are all entrepreneurs. And uh, what I, I can't remember if I mentioned or not is that they're almost all entrepreneurs in the real estate industry. And so I grew up immersed in this industry my whole life. And then I moved to the U.S. and I realized that despite the fact that the industry structure is actually pretty similar, there's been a lot of innovation in the United States. There's been basically no innovation in decades in Canada. From the early parts of the home buying journey where you're dreaming about that perfect home through to planning for how you're going to make that, that a reality for yourself and then actually executing, there's just this incredible amount of, of information, uh, opacity, stress, expense. And you, it almost seems like you have this industry that's been designed to serve itself more so than it is to serve customers. Um, and so it became really frustrating when I started to realize this and I wanted to go and, and investigate you know, why that was the case. It became very clear that a lot of this comes down to the fact that no one's really taken the big, bold bets necessary to transform the home buying and selling experience in, in Canada. So that's really what inspired me to go and, and start to, to look into you know, potential solutions to go and, and solve these problems um, in the Canadian market. So then tell us about what, what was that event maybe that pushed you over the edge to say, I'm going to go and do this thing. At the time I was doing this work, the city that I'm from, Calgary, was in the midst of, was going through a pretty severe recession. Home prices, or rather the oil price, and it's a very, the city itself is highly levered to the energy industry. Oil prices collapsed, and all of a sudden you had the city going to recession. And I had a lot of friends and family members that had houses, and they were just incapable of going through the process of selling them. And I realized that, that like, for people that have the majority of the net worth tied up in, in an asset, that are going through the experience of buying or selling something that will be one of the most significant milestones in their life, it's so emotional, it's so personal. And for that process to be designed in such a way that makes it so difficult for them to do the most basic things and to have the confidence that they can achieve the outcome that they want to achieve, it, it, it was just a problem that I, I felt this burning drive to want to go and solve. Um, and so that's what kind of inspired me to, to, to take the first step. And then I, I convinced my two co-founders, Craig and Sheldon, to join me. Um, and I think that, as you touched on, I bring a depth of experience in finance, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't overly biased by that experience. And so... Sheldon brings the experience from, from operations. He was part of the team that built and scaled Uber in Canada. And then Craig is the is the technologist. And he literally invented BlackBerry Messenger and was at Research in Motion when they were 50, 35 employees until they were 15,000. So the three of us felt like the right group of people to go and and try and solve solve these problems and transform the real estate industry in Canada. So what were the early days like? <laughs> 
it's uh honestly they were fun there's three of us at a desk in a co-working space and craig who is you know he's a he's an og technologist and he was coding our first website himself i was running around trying to get access to the first capital we needed to to run the business just for context properly is trying to create an, an end-to-end partner for canadians as they go through the home buying and selling process and so we have these free digital products you can use to go and and find your perfect home online where you can track the existing value of your home, like you track the value of your stock portfolio. And then we offer services that help you go through the purchase and sale process in a way that uh, minimizes stress and, and reduces friction. So we have a service, for example, called Sale Assurance that lets our customers buy their next home uh, first and then sell their, their existing home later. They don't have to live through the listing process. And, uh, and to offer that service, we needed a lot of capital. And so I was raising our first credit facility when it was just an idea and we had a, oh, that's my dog behind me. Uh, is trapped in the office and wants to escape. And so we were trying to raise, you know, the first capital. We were trying to put together our first operational flows. Um, and it was fun. It was exciting. Uh, taking something from an idea to, to a reality. Uh, and I remember our, our first meetings with customers where it was literally us, you know, the founders at the kitchen table with our customers saying that you should you know, work with us to go manage a person sale, despite the fact that we have no track record and no online reviews. And it's a very different way of going through a process that you've been conditioned really your whole life to believe needs to be done down the traditional path. Absolutely. So I know that the business model perhaps, you know, has, uh, uh, you know, shifted or, or shaped up a little bit. So so where are you guys at today with properly? I mean, how, how do you make money? So, yeah, the company has, has changed a lot. We launched our service focused on a single city and, and since expanded to multiple cities. And we went from three of us at a desk to now 50 plus people. And, and the team has grown really quickly. We've got another people join this week and a couple more next week. Um, and we make money by, by providing our customers with the ability to buy and sell, uh, buy their next home and sell their existing home. And so we, um, get paid when we help them to find their next homes. So we get paid a commission, like a traditional agent would get, get paid. And then again, if we help them sell their existing home successfully. And in addition to providing the traditional services that a real estate agent would provide their customer, we provide a number of other superpowers to our customers and make them uh, more likely to achieve their desired outcomes in the purchase or sale. And so we offer a service called sale assurance to let them buy their next home without any conditions and sell their existing home without living through the listing process. We offer a service called properly polished that lets them uh, get access to a $20,000 interest-free advance so that they can get their home renovated before it goes on market so they can sell for the highest possible price. Uh, and then over time, we'll be layering on additional services like financing and, and insurance and otherwise. So how much capital have you guys raised, Anshul? So we've raised just over $15 million of equity and then $100 million of, of debt. Got it. And and it's interesting here because uh, you're not the typical founder, right? The typical one that comes up with an idea, goes out there and tries to understand, you know, the fundraising process because the fundraising process is, is quite a beast. You know, you got the strategy, you got the psychology, the storytelling, the understanding the process. But in your case, you knew all that. So... So how, how did you approach the whole fundraising process and how you've approached it? And then also, what kind of people you knew that you wanted you know, to really participate in this journey with you guys? So I think that in the early days, the thing that matters the most is the quality of the team and the vision uh, when raising that early pre-seed capital, just to go and test the, the initial idea. And in our case, it required quite a bit of money just to test the idea because our first business model involved us actually buying homes from customers. But then at every stage thereafter, what mattered the most was our, our track record. And so if we could take the money that investors gave us and turn it into to actual results. And on the equity side, you know, that that process um, went pretty well. And on the debt side, it mattered even more. 
we went from having an equity investors who all they care about is making, returning their fund and changing the future. And debt investors want to protect their capital. They want to minimize risk. And so in the case of, of selling to debt investors, the strength of execution and the consistency of our track record is what matter the most. Uh, and we operate the business with a lot of discipline. And so that process was actually relatively straightforward to go through. We could go to investors and say, here's what we've done. Uh, and, you know, we're proving it to you. And so we wanted to raise uh, our, our credit facility. I think we spoke to 12 investors and received something like nine term sheets. Uh, on the equity side, it's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more of a relationship building exercise that takes, that takes a lot of time. And in terms of picking the right investors, you know, we always look at where are we strong as a team and where can we complement ourselves with the strengths and experiences of others. And so we thought about that both from picking equity investors as well as debt investors. And so on the equity side, we have one investor who was a founding investor in Compass, a big real estate platform in the US. And so he brought just this depth of experience in prop tech and understanding how the industries evolved and what it takes to scale real estate sales teams. That was massively valuable to us. And then another entrepreneur who's built in scaled marketplaces before. Uh, and then on the debt side, we're looking for partners that know what it's like to evolve a model over time in the context of an early stage company. Um, and that also have the ability to scale with us as we move to the next level. And so can they take us from 100 million to 500 million and beyond? Uh, that'll make our lives a lot easier if we can grow with the same partners instead of having to replace them round after round. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned this, you know, the founding investor of Compass, because I find that entrepreneurs, they are always about, oh, I got to raise money. I got to raise money. And, and one thing that they don't really realize is that it's not about the money. It's about the network. It's about turning it around and really the network that is giving you the money and how you can leverage that. So, so when it comes to network or when it comes to perhaps uh, assessing an investor, you know, because obviously they're doing due diligence on you, you know, from the investor to the founder, how should maybe like the founder be doing the due diligence on the investor, you know, and, and more specifically on the, on the network side of things? Um, so I can tell you what I've done, uh, if that's helpful. Uh, and Go I'm ahead. sure that uh, some of the other guests will have, will have other ideas. But what I've done is I've done really deep references on my investors, the same way that we would do on, on a new employee joining the company. We almost treat an investor like they are a new employee joining. And, uh, and you know, they're actually candidly one that we can't fire if it doesn't work out. And so you need to be even more diligent in your process of, of assessing them. Uh, and in speaking to the founders that those on investors have backed before, and, and this is actually true on the debt side as well. So speaking to the companies that have been supported by certain debt investors, we look for how has that investor provided you value over time? So what are the things that you hoped to receive from them? What are the things that they promised you? And then what do they actually do? And I want to see, like, do those things actually match up? Um, I look for what are the specific strengths that this investor brings? We want people who bring specific strength, not just a lack of weakness. And so what do they bring to the table that nobody else brings? Uh, and a lot of that oftentimes is, is network. Um, and then how do they act when things don't go exactly according to plan? Uh, we retransitioned our business model in the last year, and it took incredible conviction from our team, but also from our investors to stand by us and say, you know, we're comfortable bearing some short-term pain in the interest of long-term gain. Um, and not all investors are going to be supportive of that, of being aligned with you know, the vision of the founders to make changes that be necessary for, for the business. And so those are the three things that, that we look for. And, and I've referenced investors and said no to them based on those references. Is there, is there what was like the most, the most shocking that you heard, you know, without obviously disclosing names or anything, like something shocking that you discovered from that investor that I was like, this is a big no-no for me. So I've, I've heard of investors just 
like berating founders for not hitting target metrics um, and being completely unwilling to allow for the team to shift strategy as they learn what's going on in the market. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the entrepreneurs, the team, they're the ones that are closest to the market. They're the ones that are closest to what's happening on the ground. And they're going to learn things in real time that are, going to re- that are going to result in them shifting strategy, changing the product, changing the service, changing the brand. Um, and the, the role of the investor is to say, and the board specifically, is this the right team? Is this the right CEO to go and execute against this vision? Um, and they need to have faith in that, that person and that team to go and take all those inputs and turn it into a compelling strategy. And so when there is just an unwillingness to evolve your thinking, to have, we have a cultural norm of property, which is that we want people to have strong opinions that are loosely held, people that are willing to change their mind in the face of new information. Uh, and investors that have strong opinions that are strongly held uh, can be very dangerous and, and can result in you just moving way slower and just be a destructive force within the company. Uh, and so I've heard a lot of scary stories about that. I can imagine. Uh, in your case, though, I mean, you were touching on this earlier. I mean, there was um, a pretty nerve wracking moment, which was doing a pivot in August. So, so tell us about this and, and, and basically what was the breakthrough and the turning point there? We had this our, an original service that um, many in the industry refer to as iBuying. And so customers would, would sell their home directly to properly, and then they'd avoid the experience of having to list their home in the open market. And uh, we were doing really well. We, were, we went from like a $50 million GMB runway to $150 million between November and, and March. And the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, we had to pause transactional activity because we didn't know if the market was going to go down by 10% or 50%. And the real estate market effectively shut down for a couple months. And so in this period where we weren't really able to operate, we started to talk to our customers and, and get a sense from them as to were we adequately solving their problems. And it became clear that we we're solving half the problem. We were helping, it, helping them sell more easily. We weren't really helping them to buy their next home with more confidence. And so we came up with a, a variation of our service that we thought would better address those problems. And we tested it uh, in the summer in a pilot, and the pilot went exceptionally well. And it became clear to us that we were onto something. And then we had to make the decision of, do we operate both services or do we just pick one and go all in? Um, and we made the decision to go all in on this new service that we call Sale Assurance. Um, and it required incredible conviction from the team. It required us to change all of our messaging, a lot of our internal processes. You get to build new functions that didn't exist before and it required the patience and support of our board. And so we went from being a rapidly grown company, scaling very quickly to basically like, you know, close to, to raising our next round of capital to basically being a pre-seed company again in the span of a month. Uh, and that was a stressful experience to go through, but one that we felt confident in. And uh, and then when we actually launched the business, things went, to be honest, better than we expected them to. We got an incredible amount of media attention. We went from, I mean, we in our first week of launching, we had so many, so much demand from customers that every person on the team, including all of our software developers, were on the phone with customers answering support calls. And so it was... Uh, I think there's a degree of luck involved in that, of course, but uh, but things things went pretty well afterwards. But that period of transition was uh, was certainly a difficult one to go through. Well, as they say, luck is preparation meets opportunity. So you guys were very well prepared. Huh? So <laughs> I, I guess uh, I guess for for properly imagine, you know, you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up five years later. You wake up in a world where the vision of properly is fully realized. What does that world look like? So I think I touched on it a little bit before, where we have a vision to create a future, a world in which real estate transactions aren't stressful and complicated and expensive. They're 
managed with dramatically less friction and surprising simplicity. And where you don't need as a customer to engage with 10 or 15 intermediaries, but rather you can work with a single trusted partner to manage everything from the beginning from home search through to home sale. Um, and then more specifically from a property perspective, you know, we think that there's a future not too far from now where every Canadian has an account with properly. So they can check the value of their home like they check the value of their stock portfolio. And with a few clicks of a button, they can get access to best-in-class services that help them manage everything from dreaming and identifying about that new home through to managing the sale of that existing home. Um, and so that's the, that's the future we hope to create. I love it. So imagine if I put you into a time machine, and Shulan, and basically what I'm doing is I'm bringing you back in time, you know, maybe to that point where you were still working with Fabrice and, and thinking about that business that you were going to build. Based on what you know now, I mean, you've been at it for quite a while now with Properly. You've done, you know, a bunch of good stuff, pivots, financing rounds, you know, hiring, all of, all of the above. If you were to have that ear of that younger Aunt Shul that is, saying, that is actually listening and you were able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why based on what you know now? That's a very good question. I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be to narrow your focus. I think it's very easy to procrastinate by declaring multiple priorities. And doing this can actually even make you sound thoughtful and considered and, and measured, but it lacks impact. Um, and when you realize what focus means, it's actually really difficult. It's defining all the things that you're not going to do and being very clear about that. Um, and so doing this is incredibly difficult, but if you can do it well, it enables really clear thinking and it allows you to make decisions really swiftly. It allows you in the, you know, the context of properly saying, we're not gonna operate two businesses, we're not gonna operate in multiple cities, we're gonna focus on, on one. And when I look back at all the things that I wish we'd done differently, and thankfully the list is not, is not that long, it almost always comes back to having allowed ourselves to dilute our focus and attention for longer than we should have, uh, and to let things drag out instead of you know, being really swift, being really clear and, and very focused. Absolutely. Laser focus. So I love that. So, Anshul, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I'm on Twitter with uh, just at Anshul Ripperell. Uh, and if you're interested in learning about properly, properly.ca. Amazing. Well, Anshul, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.